Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Julia Galef. Julia is co-founder of the Center of Applied Rationality. She's the host of Rationally Speaking, a podcast, and the author of The Scout Mindset, which is a book that I loved. Julia, welcome to World of DAS. Hey, Oren. So great to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Now, um, okay, now I want to dive in first to your book, The Scout Mindset. I love the book. In the oh, book, you kind you. of present that, like this idea that humans operate with uh, either a soldier mindset, which is kind of like when we want to defend our beliefs, but there's this alternative scout mindset where we're motivated to learn the truth. Am I, am I setting that up right? Yeah, no, that's a very great, concise summary. I don't have anything to correct in it, but I will, I will add a little bit to it if you don't mind. So the scout and the soldier are my metaphors for what cognitive scientists might call more technically and less colorfully directionally motivated cognition and accuracy motivated cognition. So directionally motivated cognition, it's just like reasoning with kind of implicitly or unconsciously a predetermined conclusion that you want to get to, that you want to defend basically. And so, you know, we're often not really aware that we're doing this, but on some level we're applying this kind of asymmetric standard to the ideas we're considering, depending on whether we want to accept them or not. My favorite, sort of short summary of directionally motivated cognition or scout or soldier mindset comes from a psychologist named Tom Gilovich, who said, when we're engaging in directionally motivated cognition, when we're evaluating an idea we want to believe, we look at it through the lens of, can I accept this? Sort of looking for any justification to believe it. Whereas if we're evaluating something we don't want to believe, we look at it through the lens of, must I believe this? And we're looking for any excuse to reject or dismiss it. So I call that soldier mindset just because of the way that we talk about beliefs and argumentation in English is very militaristic. Like we attack and defend ideas. We, we build up positions, you know, like military positions. We, you know, look for weak points in someone's logic. So that's where the soldier mindset came from. Do you think we're all have a bit of soldier and a bit of scout and some people yes. are a little bit more on scout, a little bit more, a little less on soldier and, and the and your contention is the maybe we should nudge a little bit more to the scout. We're never going to be a hundred percent scout, but is that is that the idea? Yeah, that's absolutely the idea. And I'm glad you highlighted that because that's a common misunderstanding of what I'm saying is that some people are, you know, perfect scouts and other people are pure soldiers. And so you get some people like patting themselves on the back for being perfect and <laughs> shaking their head at those idiot soldiers out there who aren't me. And that was really not what I was going for uh, in the book. What I think is much closer to the truth is that yes, as you put it, we all have some soldier and some scout in us. And so it's a spectrum and we can kind of we end up fluctuating on that spectrum depending on the day or depending on the topic we're thinking about. Some people might be better at being in scout mindset about, you know, their jobs, like, you know, better at thinking like a scout when you're evaluating the stock market and more of a soldier when they're thinking about politics or their relationships or something like that. Or, you know, maybe you're talking to someone who really just, you know, raises your hackles and that puts you more in soldier mindset than you would if you were talking to someone who's much more kind of open and charitable, who you're better able to be a scout with. So there's a lot of variation and individuals can fluctuate a lot. But nevertheless, I think some people are on average better at being scouts about difficult topics than other people are. And so part of the goal of the book was to ask, 
you know, what are they doing right? What can we learn from them? If you want to be a little bit more scout-like, is there some things you should do before you start thinking about information or how do you nudge yourself to be a little bit more scout-like? This is the big question. And I could talk for two hours uninterrupted on that one question. It's like the main thing my book is about. So, you know, hopefully we can like talk more about this from different angles throughout the conversation. But to start with one key building block of, of being a better scout, I think, self-awareness, like cultivating more of an awareness of the fact that you're often in soldier mindset, even though you don't feel like you are, um, and starting to notice the kinds of mental moves that you do when you're trying to defend an idea. What's a good example of something where like you could see yourself moving a little bit more into soldier and you need to like take a step back or something or a category of technique I often recommend is the thought experiment. And so a simple example of what a thought experiment could look like, which I'm sure will be familiar to people is suppose a politician on your side, like from the party you support, does something and is getting criticized for it by the public or the media. And you think to yourself, oh, come on, that wasn't that bad. Why is everyone jumping on him? You know, this isn't a big deal. A thought experiment you could do in that situation is to ask yourself, okay, suppose a politician from the other side, the side that I hate, did the same thing and was getting criticized for it. What would my reaction be then? And you might notice, as I have often noticed in the past when I've done this thought experiment, that the result is I, I realize, oh, in that case, my reaction would be to, you know, call for his head. This this offense would seem like a big deal to me. And and I would consider it, you know, not just a resignation worthy offense, but also an indictment of the whole party. Like this just goes to show how corrupt or incompetent the whole party is, et cetera. And so to generalize the idea of the thought experiment is just to notice how you apply different kind of standards or you're willing to be more or less charitable depending on your motivations or depending on the specific you know, content of the issue. And, and so that's like one example, but it can be generalized in lots of ways. It's hard when you have a team though, right? So if my team is the red team or the blue team or something, whether it's a sports team or a political team, you know, in a sports scenario, whenever the referee calls something, I'm going to be a little bit more biased toward my team, right? Is there any way to guard against that? Because I am rooting for my team to win. So in sports, I wouldn't like literal sports. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, but in other more metaphorical teams, yeah, I think this is one of the main causes of bias of, of soldier mindset. So to some extent, I think just noticing, like just becoming more self-aware and starting to notice, oh, I am applying a different standard depending on whether it's my team or the other team, that on its own goes a long way. There's another kind of category of techniques that are aimed less at self-awareness and more at making you more open to the possibility that, you know, your side might have done something wrong or that, you know, you might have screwed up, et cetera. To give a short example of that type of technique, it consists in imagining the possibility that you might have been wrong or your team might have done something bad. And then before you try to consider whether or not that's actually true, asking yourself, how bad would that be if that were true? So, you know, for example, I'm in an argument on Twitter and it starts to slightly occur to me that maybe they have a point or maybe I was, you know, too hasty in my original tweet or something. The temptation, of course, is to push that thought out of my mind and just look for ways to, you know, defend my original tweet. But sometimes I manage to stop and ask my, do this little intervention and ask myself, okay, suppose I was wrong. How bad would that be? And what would I do about it? And usually the result of this thought experiment is, okay, I guess it wouldn't be that bad. Like I've been wrong before. And what has happened as a result, you know, maybe someone and I, I feel fine about it. I think most of the time, the fear that we have of 
turning out to have been wrong is out of proportion to the actual bad consequences that happen as a result of admitting you were wrong. And so this kind of step is is designed to help you notice that and, and thereby like relax and become more open to the possibility that you might be wrong. So I do this a lot as well. Does that answer your original question? Yeah, absolutely. M most people, it does seem like are more reluctant to be wrong. There are a class of people that I've met that sometimes blame themselves too much about yeah. things. And they oh, is, is there also a way of thinking about it for those types of people? Yeah, it's so interesting. As part of the process of writing the book, I was trying to think about why are some people so much more willing to be wrong than other people are? And I think one of the differences is in what you think it means to be wrong. And I think a lot of people, maybe most people, kind of implicitly assume that being wrong means you screwed up somehow. You know, if you'd been doing everything right, if you'd been reasoning carefully, if you'd been, you know, a smart and reasonable and competent person, you would not have made this error. And so, of course, understandably, people are reluctant to ever admit that they were wrong because that means like, you know, admitting fault in some way. And there's this different way of thinking about being wrong that I think is just more accurate and also more useful, which is that even if you're doing everything perfectly, you're still going to be wrong about tons of things. We have limited information. The world is messy. We have limited time, you know, and so even a super genius spending a lot of time thinking about everything is still going to be wrong about a ton of things. This is actually part of the scout metaphor, like why I chose that metaphor to represent accuracy motivated cognition, like thinking aimed at trying to figure out what's actually going on because the scout, you know, is drawing a map of the terrain or of a situation. But the understanding is that this is just a provisional map. This is based on the current intelligence that I have. It's based on what I've, the investigations I've done so far. And the expectation is that you are going to be revising that map as you learn more, um, as you, go observe the terrain from a different vantage point. You might notice that what had seemed like, you know, a river is actually a dried up riverbed, but you couldn't see that based on your original vantage point, etc. You're drawing the map in pencil, not pen. And so as you revise the map, that does not, it doesn't mean that you like did anything wrong with your first draft of the map. Sometimes being wrong means that you did something wrong, like you were willfully, you know, in denial or, or like super careless or something. But I think more often it's just you were doing everything right. And that still means you're going to get a lot of things wrong. And it's not your fault. And so that's a really important mindset shift that makes it a lot easier to be a scout than people might think. It was a really astute point you made that, you know, there's these two different failure modes. One is people who never admit they were wrong and they have like super confident opinions that they will never change. And then the other one is people who are too afraid to ever form an opinion about anything for fear of being wrong. And those seem like very different modes, but they actually both, I think, stem from the same misconception about what being wrong means that it means you screwed up somehow. And so like some people will never admit it and other people are afraid to even try and both are bad. <laughs> and the, the, the better and more justified approach is to understand that like you're inevitably going to be wrong a lot and that's not a sign of failure. To me, it seems like one of the ways to become more of a scout is to encourage other people to point out things where you were wrong or where at least they think you might be a little bit wrong. But there's this trope of people that have like strong opinions loosely held. And I can imagine for many people, they're going to be reluctant to challenge people that have quote unquote strong opinions. So how does one kind of put those forward in a way where you're inviting some of these challenges? So I've used this phrase before that it's good to have strong opinions loosely held. And I've since stopped using it. I think there's something really good and, and useful there, but it's so easily misunderstood or misused that I've sort of stopped using the phrase. But I'll tell you what I think that phrase should mean <laughs> and what I meant by it when I advocated it. So rather than the failure mode that I just mentioned a minute ago of 
being afraid to form an opinion ever for fear of being wrong. Picture someone who, who always says, you know, well, you know, I'm not an expert on politics or COVID or whatever, so I, I really don't know. Or, you know, I have limited experience in business strategy, so I have no idea what we should do, no opinion, et cetera. This is someone who, you know, is afraid of being wrong, and that's understandable. But what I would advocate instead is to form the best opinion you can with your limited information and, and time, and to be able to say things like, well, you know, it seems to me, based on what I've read or heard so far, that like masks are important or masks aren't important or COVID is going to be a big deal or COVID is, isn't going to be a big deal. Or, you know, it seems to me that like we should scale up fast or we shouldn't scale up fast or whatever. Form an opinion and then hold it lightly in the sense of assuming that probably it will change as you learn new information. And that process, I think, is it's just better for your sort of long term epistemic health to like form opinions and then revise them instead of never forming them at all. Um, in addition to being more useful for like being able to actually make decisions and take action in the world instead of being paralyzed by uncertainty. And so when you're communicating to other people, this is, I think, what your question was getting at. I know some people who do this really well, who do the strong opinions, loosely held thing. They'll say, you know, my current impression is strong opinion, but, you know, that's based on like limited data and that could well change. Or they'll put a percentage on it, like I'm 62% confident in this thing or something or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I do think this is really good, both so that other people feel free to push back on you as they should. And also, I think it's good for like the epistemic health of the of the community, whatever that community is, your scientific community or your, you know, social group or your, you know, team at your company. Like if you overstate your opinions, the, the strength of your confidence in your opinions for whatever reason, like if you want to sound confident or or, or I think you're you're kind of like inflating the the plausibility of that hypothesis in other people's minds uh, in a way that's not actually justified. And I think that's kind of bad for group group reasoning. So it's a lot of reasons to do that. I personally have a hard time with is just being wrong in the moment. Yeah. But I'm maybe a little bit better with thinking my past self was completely wrong. Is that a common thing that people have or how do people like think about like, when am I going to disagree with myself and how far in the past am I willing to go to disagree with myself? Yeah, that's such an interesting phenomenon. I, I agree with you. There's a bunch of different ways that I try to get people to be more open to the idea that they might be wrong in the moment. And one of the ways is asking them to, you know, whether they've been wrong in the past. And and often that that gets people to realize like, oh, yeah, I'm I have been wrong in the past that like should make it seem more likely that I am wrong about this in the present. It's an imperfect strategy. It still kind of intuitively feels like, yes, of course, I've been wrong in the past, but this current issue, I'm 100% positive I'm not wrong about. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't have a perfect solution to that. Like that intuitive feeling can be very strong, but I think at least what you can do, if you, if you acknowledge at least intellectually that, you know, there's some chance I'm wrong, even though it really doesn't feel that way, I think that at least can make you, it can motivate you to seek out potentially disconfirming information or talk to people who might have a different perspective in a way that you wouldn't if you, you know, really were positive you were right both emotionally and intellectually. So I, I sometimes talk about that in terms of separate inside view and outside view. Like my inside view is that I'm positive I'm right. My outside view is that, well, I might be wrong. <laughs> and the outside view can motivate me to, you know, get more information instead of you know, cementing my opinion as it currently is. There's a sense that like some things you could have been right about before, let's say how to recruit software engineers into your company 
there was like a specific good way of doing that in the past. And it, in maybe in the present, it no longer works as effectively as it did in the past. How do you get better at understanding, okay, this was true in the past. Like I, I feel very confident it was true in the past, but now it no longer is true. Yeah. I think that's a common, uh, a common situation. I think that makes it easier to notice that you're wrong because it one of the many examples in which being wrong is not your fault because you were you were right before. It's just that the world's changing and you need to update your view. To me, that feels much less like an ego threat than the version of wrong where you were wrong all along. You know, I don't know how it is. Is that the case for you? Definitely, definitely. If I was yeah. wrong all along, I, I probably feel more more badly about it or something. You know, for me to be wrong about a political belief is to me, it's not, it's not that big a part of my identity. I'm not, I don't usually write about political beliefs. And so if I end up changing my mind about, you know, minimum wage or something like it doesn't really affect my identity, but then there are other beliefs I might write about or something where my identity might be a little bit more wrapped in it. How do you figure out how to, how to change those beliefs or how to update those beliefs? Yeah, I appreciate you made that distinction um, because I think even though a lot of people are aware of the idea of beliefs getting wrapped up in their identity, they're often only thinking of it in terms of like political beliefs or religious beliefs. And those are indeed common examples of issues that become parts of our identity in the sense that, you know, when someone disagrees with us, we feel like personally insulted or outraged, like the honor of our tribe has been called into question or like someone stomped on our flag or something like that. But like politics and religion are just two of the most particularly prominent examples. Literally anything can become part of your identity in the same way. You know, which programming language you think is the best? Like people can get into very identity laden arguments about that. I, I think it's great that you're you have this awareness of which kinds of topics are sort of part of your identity. And one of the things I was trying to do in the book was give some suggestions for clues that a particular topic might be more part of your identity than it is for other people. Do you notice yourself feeling compelled to jump in and defend some particular ideology when it's being criticized online, even though they're not like talking directly to you, you know? Or do you feel a sneaky one, I think, is there are often groups or ideologies that we they're kind of, these are kind of negative identities where we really dislike those groups and ideologies. And so we're going to be especially motivated to believe anything that undermines or, or like makes those groups or ideologies look bad. You know, if you really hate hippies, for example, then anything that seems to show that like, I don't know, hippies are wrong about politics or hippies are stupid or whatever, that's going to be a very appealing belief for you. Right. But it's not like you yourself are part of some anti-hippie political party. So there's no like concrete positive identity that you have that is going to be apparent to you as like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a liberal. And so I better watch out for, you know, how being a liberal might affect your beliefs. The, the effective identity is operating through your dislike of a different identity, but it can still be just as warping. Like, or I don't know, a different example might be if you really hate, you know, the tech world, um, this probably won't apply to a lot of your audience, but you know, if you really hate the tech world, you're going to be especially motivated to believe anything that you know, a news story about some tech company being corrupt or about like tech making the world worse or things like that, which is not to say that those things can't be true, but like, you're just going to have an, a special motivation to believe them whether or not they are true. Okay. So let's say your book got assigned to everyone in high school. And now we've able to move the entire country or the entire world to be 30% more scout-like in the future. Are there any negative consequences you think could come from that? Yeah, I can think of several potential downsides to that. One 
potential downside of becoming more scout-like is if you do it kind of incompletely or imperfectly, there could be, you could end up worse off. Like for example, suppose you're, you're deluding yourself in two ways. First, you're deluding yourself into thinking that the company you're starting is, is guaranteed to succeed. And second, you're also deluding yourself into thinking that, that if you failed, that would be absolutely terrible and devastating. Now, suppose you read my book and you're like, I need to be a better scout. I need to be more truth seeking and like confront the things I'm wrong about. And you do that with just the first belief. So you, you now recognize that, okay, actually I'm not guaranteed to succeed. That was a delusion, but you still retain the second false belief that failure would be devastating. And so, so now you, you're like much less motivated to take the risk of starting your company because you think like, oh, I might actually fail and that would be absolutely terrible. And so you don't even try. So that 30% might be unevenly distributed, which would almost certainly it would be. So in some cases you become like way more scout mindset and then that would lead to more inaction in society or something. I predict that if everyone was, was actually being a really good scout, that this wouldn't lead to more inaction in society because yes, people would recognize that things are risky, but they would also recognize what I think is true, um, which is that we tend to be more scared of risk than we need to be. Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, and that the actual bad consequences of a lot of risks aren't as bad as they seem to us. But, you know, I'm just saying it's totally possible that people might, if you're not doing it perfectly or you're doing it incompletely or whatever, you could end up worse off if you still have some false beliefs, but you've gotten rid of others. There's some meme that like founders are risk takers, but most founders I know hate risk. Oh yeah? Like more than the average person, you think? I think so. I think they they feel like they take maybe calculated, again, this might be my bias, calculated like asymmetric bets. How do you see like this founder mindset play into the scout mindset? I've talked to a lot of founders, partly just from having lived in the Bay Area for years, but also, you know, as part of a, the process of researching the book, I, I interviewed a lot of people about what it was like starting companies and, you know, how scout and soldier mindset played roles for them and so on. And it does seem to me like there's two different approaches to the you know hard and risky endeavor of starting a company one is the kind of archetype of the founder that that like the public might picture which is someone who tries to banish the thought of risk from their mind and just cultivate a supreme certainty that they are going to succeed and their company is going to be the next google or whatever and that that sort of I mean, denial, essentially, denial of risk is their kind of coping strategy. And then the other type is maybe the one you're describing, where they're very aware of risk, but they use it kind of carefully and strategically to take calculated risks. So so they might come up with a plan for how they're going to like reduce risk as they go on, or they might, you know, reason, well, like this particular strategy might only have a 30% chance of success, but you know, I think we have the runway for like five attempts. And so like five attempts, each with 30% chance of success is whatever. I can't do that in my head, but <laughs> you know what I mean? And so they're, you know, acknowledging the existence of risk and just being kind of strategic in how much they're taking on and, and in making sure that the risks are good risks where like the benefit, the expected benefit of the risk outweighs the potential downside of the risk and things like that. And I personally, I think the latter is a healthier more conducive to success way of thinking about risk than the the former where you're just kind of denying it and trying to trying to act on sheer, you know, enthusiasm and will alone. You mentioned earlier that there are some people that they may be scouts in one area of their life, as you mentioned, let's say they're a investor or something, and they're not scouts in other areas of their life. 
is it more likely like if you're a scout in one area that you're going to translate that to another area or just people compartmentalize the different types of things in their life and just because they use scout mindset as an investor or a poker player or something they don't necessarily use it in their relationships or politics. Both are relevant. On the one hand, there's this very domain-specific uh, degree of scout mindset. Um, and I think that is, it's a function of a number of things, like how much of your identity do you have invested in that particular domain? Um, so maybe you you know, have a lot of identity invested in politics and not as much in you know, which stocks are going to go up and down. And also, I think it can be determined by things like the incentives that you face. Someone I, I often find that people in like quantitative finance are are very scout like, at least in that domain, um, because there are real stakes. Like you have a real incentive to try to see what's actually going on and change your mind when you know the situation changes, or you know test your hypotheses about the market and update them if you know it turns out they were wrong. Because you get a lot of money if you're right, and you lose a lot of money if you're wrong. <laughs> I assume it's the same for poker players as well. Right. In fact, yeah, I think people in quantitative finance and poker players are uh, are like overrepresented among the best scouts that I know, um, which is not to say they're perfect or that, you know, everyone in those fields is really good, but like on average. So yeah, I think there are these domain specific factors that can affect how likely you are to be a scout or a soldier in a particular domain. And then I think there is also this kind of general factor of, of scout mindset. It's more determined by traits of that person than about the particular domain they're thinking in. The factors that play into that are things like intellectual curiosity. How much do you enjoy the process of figuring out what's actually true, you know? And just a general kind of equanimity, like are you easily thrown into kind of anxiety and anger or not? And then also just your values, like the people I know who are, who are really good at scout mindset across a wide variety of domains, they tend to just really value it and think, you know, tend to pride themselves on their intellectual honesty or objectivity or, or, you know, things like that. And so even though they still face the temptations of soldier mindset, like they face the temptation to defend themselves publicly, you know, against criticism or to, you know, avoid thinking about inconvenient truths, uh, they have this countervailing factor that helps them, you know, say no to those temptations, which is that they can feel proud of themselves when they resist, resist those temptations and are able to, you know, change their mind or acknowledge a good point by their opponent or things like that. So those are some of the things that I think determine like the general factor of scout likeness. Really interesting. Now I want to ask you a couple of questions on podcasting. Since oh, yeah. you're on a podcast, we're so we're, it gets a little meta here, but you know, I, I love <laughs> yeah. your podcast. Rationally oh, thank speaking. you. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I'm always constantly um, recommending it to other people. And one of the things I really like about the what you do in your podcast is that you often are kind of presenting your guests with like a steel man argument and then engaging with them through that. Is that a specific tactic that you use? And is that just like really hard? It seems like it would be a lot of work to go to it. I do prepare a lot. Some might say over-prepare for my podcast conversations. A lot of that is just, I find that it takes a lot of work to understand a field or like an issue well enough to know what are the good questions to ask. Yeah. Or, or to be able to recognize like when something the guest says, you know, about the field is not actually necessarily an accurate representation of the field. And so I want to like push back on them, things like that. That actually takes a lot of preparation. Like it's not even enough to just read their book. Uh, you have to kind of like read different perspectives or, you know, read reactions in the field to the book or things like that. So yeah, it, it takes a long time. I've been trying to find ways to reduce the amount of preparation time needed for uh, a given episode, but 
But no, it still takes me many hours. I've been listening to your podcast for years. I've read a bunch of things you've written over the years. So the prep for me was not that hard in some ways because I've already done I've already done the 50 hours of prep just over the last few years, just by by default. And so then I it was easy. I just invited you on. But I could imagine going the other way where you invite someone you think might be interesting on first and then they say, oh, sure. And then you have to do the 50 hours of work. Like, which way do you go? That That is definitely a good solution is to invite people to talk about things you're already pretty familiar with. I mean, this is one reason that on my podcast, I'm more likely to invite people who do social science than, say, physics, because it's not that I think social science is more important than physics, but I am already familiar with at least like the methodology of social science. I'm familiar with how social scientists go about trying to answer questions. And so if a social scientist claims something about like, well, you know, we ruled out these hypotheses and so we can be confident that X, Y, Z, I'm going to be able to ask like, well, how did you rule them out? Because I know it's it's quite hard generally to rule out, you know, alternate causal stories. And so I'm, I want to like push back and understand like why you think they can be ruled out. But the methodology in physics is so much more outside of my wheelhouse that I wouldn't really know how to like challenge my guest on their claims. God, so instead of 50 hours of prep, it could be it could be 500 hours or something. That yeah. I mean, the two the two factors that make it an episode especially time intensive for me and make me more reluctant to take it on are A, it's in a field where I, I'm not super familiar with the, the methodology and B, it's on a kind of controversial subject where I know that if the guest says something that's kind of wrong or, you know, oversimplified or exaggerated, I like let it slide then my audience will be mad at me <laughs> they'll be like how could you let that how could you not challenge that and also of course i don't you know I, I like hope that my podcast increases the average level of truth in the world and not decreases it and so i don't want like guests to be able to spread views that are wrong without you know me at least registering that i disagree and so yeah those two factors they won't necessarily make me turn down a potential guest but it at least you know makes it a bigger endeavor to do a podcast on that. If you were going to give advice to a new podcaster like myself at World of Dust, is there some sort of like common advice that you could only learn after doing it for a few years? I guess one piece of advice took me a little while to notice is that there's often a temptation to just invite guests who are already kind of well-known, you know, public intellectuals or authors or pundits. And that has advantages and disadvantages. An advantage is that they're very practiced at giving, you know, articulate and interesting or entertaining answers. I mean, I guess another advantage is that like that can increase the size of your platform because they'll share your podcast to their many followers. So that's an advantage. A disadvantage that I hadn't really noticed at first is that they often aren't very good at something I highly value in a podcast guest, which is a willingness to actually think about the questions on the spot um, and respond to the actual question that is asked. And instead what they do, kind of understandably, if you're you know, giving a lot of interviews, they'll kind of answer with the talking points that they're already used to giving, which may be very like interesting and intelligent talking points. But what I want in a podcast is to like have an actual conversation where they're listening to me and they're responding to my questions and I'm you know, listening to their responses and responding to them, et cetera. So I, I often find that's harder with like famous people. And also from the audience, like if they've heard that famous person a few times, if you're right, if they're very practiced, then you, you might not learn anything new because they, they probably are saying things that they've already said before. Yeah. Or like they're optimizing for something else besides having like an interesting conversation or, or like they're optimizing for adding to their public image or brand or something or, or being entertaining maybe. I don't mean to criticize all famous public intellectuals. There's like a lot of great ones out there, but it's just like a pattern that I've noticed. 
okay, so if I, I want to get doubly meta now, and so if, if I'm trying to have a scout mindset about being a host of this particular podcast, what advice could you give me to improve being a better podcast host? I've enjoyed the conversation a lot and haven't, nothing like jump out, jumped out at me as, ooh, he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I mean, I guess a thing that I wish podcast hosts would do in general is like disagree more with their guests, like in a, you know, amiable and charitable way, of course. Um, but as a listener, I often find that the most like interesting parts of the conversation are where the host is talking about either a disagreement that, you know, he or she has with the guest and trying to like understand why they disagree or talking about a disagreement the guest has with someone else. Like in my most recent podcast, I had the behavioral geneticist, Catherine Page Harden. And towards the end of the episode, uh, we talked about a disagreement between her and her PhD mentor, Eric Turkheimer, about uh, whether or not it's meaningless to ask whether there might be genetic causes of differences between uh, racial groups. And so anyway, it's just, I feel like the most interesting issues are kind of in these areas of non-overlap where like different experienced and smart intellectuals who have studied a topic come to different conclusions on it and sort of those are the areas that I want to dig into the most. And so I always wish podcast hosts would talk more about disagreement. One of the things I like about your podcast in, in that is you're you're willing to go in these areas that you know might seem quote unquote controversial. And you, you may not even have an opinion about it per se, but you're want to learn a little bit more about it. And you seem to navigate these fields really well, at least from my standpoint, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like you're, it seems like you're willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the person and through it, at least personally, I don't know that I would be wanting to delve into these more controversial topics. Like how do you, how do you see that as part of your duty as a podcast host? So <laughs> I'm glad you think that I do a good job of it. I, I definitely take in, you know, tentative steps into talking about controversial things because um, I know it's hard. I guess one thing that I do that I think helps is to talk about controversial issues with a couple layers of remove added. So like instead of trying to share my own opinions about IQ or something, I'll instead ask a guest about the causes of her disagreement with another person about IQ. So there's like three layers of remove added there. And I still think it's like a, an important and interesting angle on the subject, like more interesting than my own personal opinions would be actually. People are much less likely to get angry if you're analyzing something at like a meta level as opposed to the object level. It also helps to just like use a lot of nerdy language, meta and, and you know, <laughs> priors and stuff like that. Like that makes people's eyes glaze, glaze over and so then they don't get mad at you. <laughs> Got it. I guess you could do it like three fourths of the way into the podcast. So anyone still listening right. there is, is going to be a real true, uh, true, true person. Right. I mean, also, I mean, probably even more important than the two things I mentioned is to actually have a track record of, you know, not being, uh, not being a soldier. There are some people who I say that they just want to ask questions and get to the truth. But in practice, if you look at the guests they choose and the conversations they have, they have a couple hobby horses that they just really want to, you know, harp on about. and. You know, they'll invite guests who, who like challenge the consensus on those hobby horses, but they're not that interested in the other, you know, in other topics or other sides. And so I think people are more likely to trust that you are genuinely like asking questions and trying to figure things out if you have a track record of doing that. All right. A couple of personal questions before we let you go. So you, you've been very involved in the quote unquote rationality movement. How, how do you see that evolving over time? Bit of context, the rationalists, um, I guess community is a little more accurate than movement. Although maybe I've said movement in the past, I don't know. It kind of started 
online in maybe like the late 2000s, like 2000, no, 2006, 2007. Is this like less wrong blog and some of yeah, these so other things? Yeah, so it grew up around two blogs, basically, Overcoming Bias and then Less Wrong, which I guess spun off of Overcoming Bias. And, and it was basically just a group of people, like not officially affiliated or anything, no official name, but like a group of people who liked having discussions on these blogs about rationality, which has a specific meaning in this context, which is different from the colloquial meaning. So it's worth highlighting that specific meaning is the term as it's used by academics. Epistemic rationality is the art of forming beliefs that are as accurate as possible. Essentially what I'm writing about in the Scout Mindset. And then instrumental rationality is about making more effective decisions that more effectively achieve your goals, whatever those goals are. And so the rationalist community was just a bunch of people who are really interested in talking about epistemic and instrumental rationality, both kind of on an abstract philosophical level, like, you know, how do you define truth or accurate beliefs? And also on a practical level, like talking about particular, you know, scientific issues and like, what's the best way to think about this and, you know, troubleshooting common biases that make it hard for them to achieve their goals, things like that. So it doesn't mean like a bunch of people who think they're rational and other people aren't, but I can see how that, I can see why people would assume that from the name. So I, I forever find myself having to like try to correct that misunderstanding. If I thought of like the crypto community and I said, okay, who's your deity or your God that, you know, maybe they would appoint to Satoshi uh -huh. in the rationalist community. Is it Bayes? Is that the person everyone will <laughs> point to? Or? Um, people will sometimes joke about like the Reverend Thomas Bayes. I mean, he was, he, yeah, he was a reverend uh, hundreds of years ago who he formulated this very simple theorem in probability Bayes theorem or Bayes rule. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a very basic philosophical, or sorry, a basic probabilistic theorem. But if you're trying to be Bayesian, then you kind of try to keep that rule in mind as, as a guideline for how you should be updating your beliefs as you learn new information. That, that is definitely one of the kind of core principles underlining, especially the discussions of epistemic rationality, like how to form accurate beliefs about things. And of course, there's plenty of room for disagreement about like specifically how should a Bayesian update in light of this new information or that new information. So it's not like a perfect template for what you should believe, but it is kind of a guideline for the structure of, you know, how an ideal reasoner would think. And then you can like use that to try to evaluate your own thinking. Okay. This is really good. The, the last question we ask all of our guests is what is a con the conventional wisdom or advice that maybe is generally bad advice? I mean, one is something that we kind of talked about earlier in the conversation, which is that advice often given to founders that in order to motivate yourself to do this hard thing, you should like banish all thought of failure from your mind and just try to believe 100% in your success. And I think this is, it can motivate people. Um, it just also comes with this big downside that it, you're, you're kind of crippling your ability to think clearly about the pros and cons of different options and the, you know, weigh risks against benefits and costs and just like choose the path with the best expected value. It's really hard to do that if you're not letting yourself think about risk at all. And something that I think people often don't realize is that some of the most successful founders in history completely flouted that common wisdom. So for example, one person I talk about in my book is Jeff Bezos, who early on when he was like just deciding to leave his job on Wall Street to start the company that would become Amazon, um, he explicitly thought about risk to himself and tried to estimate the risk that his new company would fail. And his best guess was that there was about a 70% chance that his company would fail. And But he was he was fine with that risk because he was like, well, I think 
you know, I'd much rather try to take the risk and fail and then be, you know, proud of myself that I tried this hard thing than to never take the risk. And so I feel good about that. But he was explicitly recognizing that what he was doing was risky. Um, and that did not, uh, he's kind of like an existence proof that you can acknowledge to yourself that what you're doing will most likely fail and still be really motivated and, you know, hardworking to try to make it succeed in spite of the odds. There are a bunch of, you know, slightly le less high profile examples of successful founders who, you know, were honest with themselves about the risks they were facing and didn't let that get in the way of their determination to, you know, try to succeed as best they can. Right. And even in Jeff Bezos' uh, case, like the, the risk was pretty muted, right? So let's say he failed after a few years. So he would lose that really nice salary he had at DE Shaw for those few years, but he would learn something really interesting. And he almost certainly could have got his job back at, at the, so, so his risk was actually pretty small. Um, yeah. And the risk for not doing in some ways was larger because you would have always been asking yourself, what if I did this or I had this dream or, you know, et cetera. That's right. Yeah, I think people often think about risks just in terms of these very specific measurable things like I'll like lose this amount of money that I invested, you know, or I'll gain this amount of money if I my company succeeds or something. But there are all these kind of messier costs and benefits that that can be just as important as the measurable monetary ones like yeah, the experience that you'll gain from doing the thing even if it fails um, or the connections that you'll make from doing the thing even if it fails or, you know, the, the prestige or the stigma of, you know, being a founder, depending on how you look at it, or, or just like the consumption good angle on it all, like, would you actually enjoy it? Um, or would it be miserable compared to, you know, working a regular job, all of these factor in and it admittedly makes it very hard to calculate the expected value of starting a startup versus working on Wall Street. There's no real objective way to do that. You can do kind of some rough back of the envelope or just just off the cuff estimates of whether the expected value is, you know, more positive for starting the startup versus, you know, staying in your current job. And I think trying to do those rough best guesses is much better than not trying to do them at all. There's one thing maybe to do that in starting a business or investing in a particular thing. How do you think about people should apply this in their like personal life? Like, should I get married? Should I have kids? Like you know, these other kind of questions that, you know, maybe your gut's pretty good for. How do you use one versus the other? There's no right formula for making these decisions, but I think the kinds of thought experiments that I was alluding to earlier, well, I guess the one I gave was a, a political thought experiment, um, but thought experiments also work for, for personal decisions. You know, if I'm telling myself this person is going to change, and so I'm like, even though we have these unworkable problems now, I'm going to take the plunge because I'm sure I can change him. A thought experiment you can do is to imagine that, you know, a friend of yours was in the same situation with the same, you know, boyfriend with the same problems. And, you know, this was her plan. How would you feel about that plan? Would you feel optimistic or not? Often, you know, removing yourself from the situation and trying to look at it as if it were someone else can, uh, you can end up having a very different reaction than you had when, when it was you in the situation. Someone once told me they like, they try to think of themselves as like their cousin, someone they care a lot about, but it's not, it's not even their brother or sister. No, that's nice. Actually. I, I was just musing about this on Twitter recently. A common version of this advice I hear is that imagine your friend came to you with this problem. What would you tell them? It's kind of close to the advice I would give, but maybe not ideal because I think even though, yes, we have a bias often in favor of, you know, putting on rose colored glasses in our own life or, or sometimes in favor of beating ourselves up over things that we wouldn't beat other people up over. 
if you're talking to a friend, you often have a different bias that can also be distorting where you don't want to tell your friend anything, you know, harsh or negative, and you just want to be encouraging. And so I don't necessarily think that thought experiment is great at giving you like your best, honest, objective picture of the situation. And so I, I like the cousin example because it's like someone who you're close enough to that you actually care about what happens to them, but maybe not, you know, maybe far enough removed that you're able to sort of think more objectively about, you know, their situation and their prospects. So yeah, there's maybe some kind of happy medium like person that you should be imagining in that thought experiment. This has been awesome, Julia. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. You mentioned Twitter. I love following you on Twitter. Can you tell folks where to follow you on Twitter or anywhere else? Yeah, I'm just Julia Galef on Twitter. It's Julia. My last name is G-A-L-E-F. Please come join my musings on Twitter about this and other subjects. And my book is The Scout Mindset. Uh, my podcast is Rationally Speaking, and that's at rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. Um, then my personal website is just juliagaliff.com. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been awesome. Oh, my pleasure. It's so great uh, talking with you, Orin. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.